Hey everybody, happy uh, Independence Day. I hope you're having a great weekend. My name is George Hinman. You know, the old hymn says, Christ died to make us holy. Let us live to make them free. And that is uh, our mission. And thanks to Jesus Christ, we can actually do it. Good to be with you today. Thanks for worshiping. Alice Hines wrote an article for the New York Times called My Tinder Date Lied. Was I the Creep? It's a, one of the articles in the series that New York Times gathered together in 2018 called Life After College is Weird. And she says, my Tinder date lied. So Alice Hines swipes right. She's on a date with a guy that she hasn't physically met before. Kind of likes him. Brown eyes, brown hair, knit cap, uh, bookish. Says he works for the New York Review of Books. He translates foreign texts into English. Um, they click, she texts, they meet, and the relationship develops. One problem, though, is she can't seem to validate his story on the internet. She, he's got a common name, so she's you know, Googling around and can't seem to locate um, what he's telling her. Well, uh, this frustrates her a little bit, doesn't concern her too much until one day through a social network, she bumps into somebody who actually knows him and they say, you know, what most people do to make themselves look better, he just does it more. At this point, Ms. Hines begins to panic, and she says, I gave my research operation a cash injection, which means she started to pay for access to databases. Well, what she learned is this guy didn't work for the New York Review of Books, didn't speak German, didn't go to Harvard, and uh, he lied to her. And uh, that's a scary thing. So she, she uh, begins to wonder, though, was I the creep? And I would say, no, of course you weren't. He's the creep. But she goes, you know, but um, I, I found myself in all the research doing things that I didn't really feel comfortable doing in a loving relationship, right? Uh, it was the stalking. It's when you've got 26 browser tabs open on a person at 2 a.m. in the morning. She writes in the article, I went to bed feeling uneasy over my transgression more than the ones I had begun to imagine that he had committed. Deception. She even had set up at a bar with a bartender. She paid the bartender to check his license so she could get his real name. So entrapment. Um, for her, catching him in the lie began to become kind of a power trip. And she says, my own behavior became twisted. Was I the creep? Kind of an extreme uh, situation. But actually, it's a very interesting question, particularly when we're thinking about uh, dating, right? She's saying, you know, I'm not sure with this Tinder translator guy, I, I like who I was becoming in the context of that relationship. And it's important for us to think about that when we're dating, for example. The question isn't just, do I like you? But do I like me when I'm with you? Do I like who I'm becoming? This is really the big dating question. We tend to think dating is all about trying to find the right person. But the big dating question is, how, how am I becoming uh, the right person? Not how do I find someone who makes me feel loved, but how am I becoming someone who loves well? Ms. Hines is surfacing for us the transition question. Remember, in the series, we're learning the difference between change and transition. Uh, change is something that happens to you, and that's inevitable. Transition is something that happens inside of you, and that takes intention and takes work. 
And this is what we're focusing on because this is a task of life after college. Um, the big dating question is important when you're making that transition, but also it's important for all of us. How do I become someone who loves well? Well, let's turn to our panel of experts. Take a moment and hear what they have to say about relationships. Watch You this. all individually, what's dating look like right now? It's a dry and barren land. <laughs> There's no meeting new people. There's no um, interactions post-COVID. Yeah, nothing. It's just been uh, I'm taking my brother out on dates my mom. And, uh, <laughs> it's been awesome. I actually enjoy um, this time of just straight singleness, not talking to anyone. So Everything is online now. Every Everything. I have a feeling that relationships are going to shift now because people's circles are not expanding. You're not meeting new people. And so... I think that's kind of the dating scene. For me, it's non-existent. You know, I have like a huge family, uh, you know, on both sides, and a lot of aunts and uncles. And you know, like, unfortunately, like most of those marriages have ended in divorce. I feel like it's easy to put um, the desire to like be with someone over like everything else in your life, and it just takes over. Um, so I was just in a season of like not wanting to deal with that at all and like focusing on like centering on God and like also centering on like developing familial and friend relationships and just like school and work and stuff. Um, and that's just been uh, emphasized even more in COVID because um, now it's not just a choice, it's a necessity. <laughs> It's hard to meet people after college. Meeting people by happenstance isn't a thing that happens all the time. And it doesn't happen, especially in Seattle. Just the fear of like being alone and um, that lack of patience. Start something, but not because they want to be with that person. They just want to be with someone. Uh, there was like a solid month where I was like, okay, honestly, like being single is super dope. Like I feel like I could be single for the rest of my life. But then you know, like the, the next month I was like, dang, she's really cute and she's really cute. And uh, like, I don't know, it's kind of been tough. I know one mom who would love to go on a date uh, with a kid, but uh, yeah, I know that's really too weird. But weird um, is what dating is during COVID-19. Weird is what dating is just after life, after college, everything changes. But here's the question, how do I become someone who loves well? It's interesting to me that this is a question that comes up in the conversation between St. Paul and a young friend of his named Timothy. Uh, and the substance of that conversation is preserved for us in, in uh, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 4 through 13. So um, we'll put the words up on the screen, but I'm going to read together with you this passage. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Uh, You can be seated. Well, it might be a surprise to you that Timothy is here in this conversation, but really he is. Timothy helped plant the church in Corinth. Chapters 4 and 13 of this letter tell us that Paul has sent Timothy with the letter. It may be that Timothy is even reading the letter. Now, as Timothy reads this letter, I just kind of wonder what implications he might think this section has for his love life. Right? Remember, this is not about marriage, even though we love to read it at weddings. It's not about dating or marriage. Um, it's really about life in the church. The most intimate relationship that people can have is with Jesus Christ and with one another around Christ. And Paul is writing to a church that's become divided in so many ways through misuse of spiritual gifts, lawsuits, uh, envy, immorality. Uh, They've lost contact with the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so this magisterial description of love is to call them back to that. Timothy, I mean, he's a young man. We know that. He's probably single. It seems to be the case, like the Apostle Paul. I wonder what he would think about his love life as he hears this. Well, um, I want to interact with you uh, about that. Uh, When I was in college, I remember thinking about the Bible. You know, it says a lot about how to be married, how to be single. The Bible doesn't really say much at all about dating, although, frankly, I hadn't read much of the Bible at that point in time. But there is uh, some truth to that, that dating is kind of a modern invention. I remember... I was uh, very new to Jesus, not so new to d- dating, and I was trying to hide my faith from my girlfriend. You know, on Tuesday nights or whenever it was, I would sneak out to a small group. It, you know, I was just horrified that my roommates, my friends, my girlfriend would ever find out that I had taken an interest in Jesus or associated with anything Christian. So I'd hide in my backpack, run over there. Um, and then <laughs> a few weeks later, I learned she had a secret too. My girlfriend actually, while I was at one small group, she was going to a different small group. She also had a new interest in Jesus, and we were both pretending that we didn't. Uh, So what happened is Jesus inserted himself into our relationship unbeknownst to either of us. And we were doing, at that moment, Christian dating, whatever that was. And by the way, what is dating anyways? I don't know. So um, when I was doing dating. I didn't have the internet to do all the hard work for me. So I, you know, naturally went to the, uh, to the web to find out what dating is. And I looked for a definition. The first thing that came up was from the Urban Dictionary. So I thought this is helpful. Let me read this to you. Dating, the Urban Dictionary tells us, dating is where two people who are attracted to each, each other spend time together to see if they also can stand to be around each other most of the time. If this is successful, they develop a relationship. Although sometimes a relationship develops anyways if the people can't find anybody else to date them or are very lonely or one person is only attracted to the other and pretends to be in love with a second unfortunate person who has the misunderstanding that they have found love. This, of course, quite often and eventually leads to something called cheating. (laughs) Thank you, Urban Dictionary. Now, 
if that rings true to you, let's talk. Um, I couldn't bear to click on cheating and find out what the definition for that was. Um, and I didn't find that definition actually so helpful. So, but I have better luck with the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's look at this text again and ask ourselves, you know, how do we become someone who loves well? And what implications are here for dating? Well, there are two great truths. And the first one is this. Love is an action. We see this in the first paragraph, verses 4 through 7. Love is an action. If you were to read this in the original language, what you would see is just a string of verbs. I know in our translation we see a lot of is. It says is, is, is. But really these are all strong verbs. In other words, Paul's saying love, it's not that love is, it's that love does. Love does something. It takes action. It does patience. It does kindness. It bears all things. See, it's an action. Now, you may know that the word for love that Paul uses here is that great word agape. The Greeks had four words for love. Storge, which meant affection. Eros, which means romance. Philia, which means friendship. All good. Uh, Agape, though, this is the special word that Jesus took up when he described God's love, his Father's love for the world. Like in John 3.16, for God so loved, that's a verbal form of agape, the world, he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Man, this is an active love. Do you see that? He gave his son. Uh, this is love that's unconditional. This is love for the world, for us, for me, at our worst. And that's, that's what agape starts to mean in the New Testament era. It's a beautiful word. Love does not seek its own. That's, here's, a, here's my definition for agape. Agape is the sacrificial, other-serving, giving love. Love that is not working on its own interests, but the interests of the other. Agape is the sacrificial, other-serving, giving love. Love is not working on its own interests, but on the interests of the other. So immediately, you see, it's, it is a verb. We tend to think of love as a, a feeling. And Paul says, no, it's not a feeling. This is not what I feel when I'm with you, <laughs> an emotional response, an affect. No, this is what I do when I'm with you. I serve you. I, I, I put your interests ahead of my own interests. This is love as an action. I love you at your worst. Love does not seek its own. Okay, so let's come to our question. So how does someone become, how do I become someone who loves well? Well, we have to make a transition. Uh, A transition from what I'm feeling in the relationship to what I'm doing in the relationship. Okay, that's pretty significant. From what I'm feeling to what I'm doing, into an action. Aziz Ansari says that if you have a smartphone, you have a singles bar in your pocket 24-7. And that singles bar makes commitment hard. This is his argument in in his book, Modern Love. You know, we research our dates like we research our vacuum cleaners, right? Lots of research, find the best one. The The trouble is when we're with somebody, we have this nagging suspicion that there might be somebody better for us Uh, out there somewhere. And so we're wondering what we're missing. This is what Barry Schwartz calls the paradox of choice. That the more choices you have, the lower the satisfaction that you have with the choice that you end up making. Now, interesting to me, Aziz Ansari uh, grew up in a, a healthy family where the mom and the dad were in an arranged marriage, right? They're Indian. 
And uh, he cites a, a sociologist who in 1932 dug up 5,000 marriage licenses in the city of Philadelphia and looked at them and found that in 1932 in Philadelphia, one out of three marriages happened between two people who lived no further away than five blocks. And if they met their spouse in a five block radius. One out of six met those, their spouse in their own block. One out of eight met their future spouse in their own building. Just think, there may be someone in your building that you'll be married to someday. It seems weird to us, but not to them. What do we learn? Healthy relationships don't come from finding the right person. They come from becoming the right person. They come from gaining the strength and ability and desire to do the hard work of love, to be committed. Because love is about actions. It's not about feelings, fundamentally. Yeah, romance is important. Don't hear me wrong. The feelings, they matter, but they're more like the sparks or the flame of a fire. The real wood of the fire is this sacrificial, other-serving, giving love. And that, that's hard sometimes, isn't it? This, by the way, is why cohabitation is a bad idea. It's just too easy. When Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, yes, you're right, and the man that you're not with isn't your husband, they're living together, it's because someone isn't willing to do the hard work. Someone's not making the commitment. In that culture, it's almost certainly the man. Dr. Meg Jay, she says cohabitation is like a credit card with an intro, intro interest of 0%. Right? That credit card's easy to get in. It's got lots of rewards. But, you know, a year later when that interest rate jumps up to 23%, man, you're, now you're stuck because you can't afford to pay it off. This is what they call the cohabitation effect, and it's been well documented. Is that those of us who try before we buy find ourselves less satisfied in marriage eventually and more likely to divorce. Why? Because Without a high commitment to that person and that relationship, we tend not to be willing to do the hard work. And it's so easy just to slide into marriage with the wrong person. After all, I've dedicated months or years to this person. We own the same couch, have all the same friends, and of course we share a dog. Might as well get married. And it can be a mistake. Dating is not about pretending to be married. It's about gaining the strength to love no matter what relationship you're in. So this is why I say to people, if you're dating, I want you to invest in the friendship. Invest in the friendship. The foundation of any healthy marriage is always the friendship. And so if God leads you to marry this person, then you'll have that foundation already laid. If God leads you in a different direction, then well, you've got a friend. And you've also gained strength. You've grown in your capacity to do love, even when it's hard. To love somebody at their worst. So it's an action. Love is an action. That's the first great truth of this teaching. The second is that love is a destiny. Read this paragraph carefully. The first one is about the action. The second one is about the future of love. Notice all the words then, then. Paul's looking to the future, some future date. And there's a transition here as well, isn't there? Here's what he says. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reason like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only a part, but then I will fully, uh, know fully even as I've been fully known. I love this passage. I put this in my uh, yearbook page. I didn't know what it meant, but I just was drawn to it. 
And there are two images here. One is a mirror and the other is an adult. See, the image of the mirror raises the question of uh, who am I? And the, issue, the image of the adult raises the question of who am I becoming? But it's a fraught question for Paul. Follow me here because we think we know the answer to these questions. Paul says, you don't know the answers to these questions. It's an enigma. This is the word he uses. In verse um, 12, it's translated dimly in our passage. Now we see in a mirror dimly. That word dimly is uh, enigma, which our English word enigma comes from. It means an enigma or a puzzle. It means a mystery. It's, a, it's something we can't quite solve for. Corinth was famous for its mirrors. We read in history about Corinthian bronze. And uh, those mirrors, as beautiful as they were, were not as faithful as our mirrors were. They, they didn't tell the truth in exactly the same way. They, they were dim. There was a, an enigma. You could see yourself but couldn't quite see yourself. And Paul's playing on that here. He's saying, you don't really know who you are. You don't really know who you're becoming. Now, you may say, oh, Paul, yes, of course I do. I, I think about the sum total of all my wants and fears, right? My desires, my passions, my dreams, uh, my sexuality, if you want, my choice in music, the kind of food I eat or don't eat. This tells me who I am. And Paul goes, I'm not so sure that it does. Madeline Levine, a sociologist, psychologist, writes that this generation has been so good at playing to other people's expectations that they have no sense of who they are in themselves, of what, what, what's the life that they've been given and, and really want to live. And it's led to an epidemic of disorders of all kind. In more theological terminology, the Apostle Paul, I think, would point to this timeline, this idea of destiny, the now and the then. Because I think Paul would say, you know, there are only two points in time when you could really see yourself as you are with clarity, like a modern mirror. And those points are at your inception and at your fulfillment in this timeline of destiny. If you were to go back to what Paul would have called in the beginning, on the other side of the fall, back to that state of perfection when God's love was complete, if you could walk with Adam and Eve through the Garden of Eden, you could look in the river of life and see in your face and you'd have seen that's the real you right there reflected in that because you're in the fullness of God's love and you see yourself clearly. And, and that's when you can become really naked and unashamed, which is the language of Genesis 2. Or you can go all the way to the other end. You, can, you could walk the streets of the New Jerusalem fulfillment when everything is what it was supposed to be. And you could look at the streets of gold. And if you see your face, that, that would be the real you as well. That's, that's really you. Because now again, you're in the fullness of God's love. There you're known and, and fully known uh, you're knowing and fully known. You're uh, purified, healed, like a bride for a groom is the image there. Paul says, but, but in this day, no. Our lives are so wrapped in sin and brokenness, they're so disordered by the fall. Our perception of ourselves is askew. It's, we can only see ourselves dimly. By the way, it's because our experience of God is, is partial. We only know God in part now. We only know ourselves, therefore, in part. Our experience of that love is not yet complete. So he says, be careful as you answer these questions of who am I and who am I becoming. In fact, his argument would be the only way any person, modern or otherwise, really truly knows themselves is by looking into the face of Jesus. 
This is the image that becomes clear, the face of Jesus. Uh, and he's been arguing that. In the first paragraph, when love gets personified, he personifies love because Jesus personifies love. See, Jesus is the one who's patient. Jesus is the one who's kind. Jesus is the one who bears all things. So really, he's talking about seeing our destiny in the face of Jesus. God has approached us in Jesus. Now, it becomes clear that this is what he's working with in the second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul writes this, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. You're like, wait a minute. I could get that if it were a window and I'm looking through a window and then I could see the glory of the Lord. And he goes, no, you're not looking in a window. You're looking in a mirror. You're seeing the glory of the Lord inside of you. See that? That's, that's startling. Seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If you really want to see the true you, he says, now the best you can do is to look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you actually see him reflected in your light, life. The image of Christ is the image that's being formed inside of you. And that's the true you, Christ in you, Christ loving you, Christ empowering you to put away childish things, Christ transforming you from one degree of glory to another. That's your destiny. So love is a destiny. Now let's ask the question, so how do I become someone who loves well? Well, there's a second transition to make, and that's from life by myself to life with Jesus, or as Paul would say, life in Christ. A woman walked into a restaurant. She scanned the room. She saw a man in the corner sitting in a beekeeping suit, full body beekeeping suit. And you can ask the question, is he hiding behind a mask or is he projecting his true identity? Uh, she was delighted, laughed, didn't want to embarrass him. Obviously, this is the one she's looking for. They had met online, and now they were having their first face-to-face -face date, and they had a charming date. Uh, they talked about bees and honey, and the relationship developed from there. Here's my observation about dating. It's so weird because it involves this paradox of unconditional love and constant evaluation. You're looking at the guy in the bee suit and you're going, I want to love you just the way you are, but I'm not sure I could live with a guy who eats at a restaurant in a bee suit, right? I mean, this is, this is what's so weird about dating. We're trying to love somebody unconditionally, just as they are at their worst, but we're constantly evaluating them. We constantly have to ask ourselves, can I really take all of that? How, how much do I have to put up with? How much distance? How much difference? Really dating, modern dating, I would say is impossible. Because we can't love somebody well and evaluate them at the same time. We can't be vulnerable and share who we really are to be known and also be evaluated at the same time by somebody who's not sure they want to stick with us. In this sense, I think modern dating is the very worst preparation for biblical marriage. And yet we've got to do it. Alice Hines is thinking about her Tinder translator when she says most people curate their digital lives to the extent that they border on fiction. She's talking about the image of ourselves that we project, the image of ourselves that we hold up to other people because we think this one is worthy of love. This is the real me. Borders, she says, on fiction. Well, that's not just our digital images. That's the way we all do this. She writes this, relationships are often built on our fantasies that our partners are only their best selves. And I would say, not just fantasies about our partners, but fantasies about ourselves and who we are as well. And I just want to tell you, if that's what dating is life, like, let me tell you what your marriage will be like. If your dating is about hot fantasies of you and your partner, here's what marriage will be. Cold disappointment. Because it'll be the first time you make contact with reality. Disappointment. 
So what do we do about that? Well, we invite Jesus. We invite Jesus to the relationship. You know, oh my gosh, my dating life, Jesus? Yeah, your dating life, Jesus, into your life. Because only when Jesus steps into the room do you, either of you, have a source of unconditional love. Because Jesus is going to bring that action. He's going to bring agape. He's going to bring the, the love that embraces you at your very worst. And he's going to bring a love, that agape, that calls you to your very best. It's transformational love. This is the way God has approached us in Jesus Christ. It's terrifying and it's tremendously inviting. He loves us at our worst and he loves us into our best. In his presence alone is it safe to, be, to know and to, to be fully known. And it's only in his presence that we have nothing to hide, nothing to project, nothing to pretend, no fantasy with him. So if with your boyfriend, if with your girlfriend, you are not able to be in the presence of Jesus, then I gotta tell you, that's the one point where it's really clear to me, it's time for a change. That's when the evaluation does come in. It's just critical that we can be in the presence of Jesus to know and fully know, be known. Jesus' love must come first above all other loves, all other loves. And I love the way C.S. Lewis says in his great book, The Four Loves, he writes, all other loves must submit to be second things. If they are to remain the things that they want to be, they have to be second things. And then listen to this, they are taller when they bow. All loves are taller when they bow to the great love of God in Jesus Christ. Invite him into the relationship. Now that may mean for you that it's time for you to marry this one that you're with. Or maybe it's time to move on to somebody else. Or maybe it's time to stay single. Actually, Paul's already told Timothy in chapter 7 that in the kingdom of, of God, singleness is even better than marriage. So I, you know, but when we put Jesus first, he will lead us. I remember when I was dating my wife, uh, Anne, I was terrified. I mean, I loved Anne, but I thought, how can I ever make a life commitment to somebody? I mean, I, I'm so young. I don't know the future. I don't know who I'm going to become. I don't know who she's going to become. This seems entirely unsafe. In the midst of all that, Jesus gave me a verse from the Bible. It was Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I heard again and again Jesus saying to me, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he will add, and all things will be added to you. All these things that you're so worried about will be taken care of. Just delegate the anxiety to the Lord. Your one focus is going to be on me. Jesus is telling me. And, I, and I, I claimed that promise and I lived into it. And he was faithful. And why wouldn't he be? And why, and why isn't this the smartest thing to do? Right? Nobody loves me more than Jesus. Nobody knows me better than Jesus. Why would I think I can trust myself more than him? I trusted him and he has been so faithful. So love is an action and love is a destiny. Let's pause one more time to listen to our panel experts and see what this looks like for them. I guess for me, the goal is less romance and more partnership. That sounds kind of boring, but I don't know. That sounds more stable to me. I usually think of romance as not as selfish. It's kind of like a selfish act or like it, I'm in it for myself only. Um, I think the companionship and the longer side of things is just, it's more task oriented um, and it takes a lot more patience, diligence and time. You can never know another person 100%. So even after you break down your barriers and like that would be a debilitating piece of knowledge if not for the fact that we know that God can know us fully, right? And so that's been a very freeing thing to realize 
Um, and also realizing that in like past relationships, um, when I would center myself around the person versus centering around God, right? It's like we all have a God-shaped hole in our heart that can only be filled by God and like not another person. Oftentimes I do try to, yeah, put like girls in in that void where that only God can fill. Um, and it just leads to a lot of heartbreak and it leads to just drama and all these terrible things. Um, God just really called me to um, like a, a year of singleness um, and to try and like pursue um, contentment and just a, a greater loving relationship with God. The goal isn't marriage. The goal is good relationship, like healthy relationship. And uh, I think far too often people dive into things that aren't meant for them and they aren't ready for um, because they're scared to get left behind. I, I came to know Jesus through the end of my last relationship. And so like, and I see that as like the biggest blessing like ever because like the relationship that I have with him is like so much more beautiful and it's just crazy because like I think in my life I've been shown very strongly that I have made an idol out of relationships when I meet like um someone it's like would we be better off serving God on our own or together the point is that he is supposed to come and infiltrate all parts of our lives and mm. find someone who is equally yoked someone who is on the same trajectory towards Jesus with you, someone that can keep pace with you, um, who can encourage you when you fall back and someone you can encourage if they fall back. I just want to know who my guy friends are or who they are in their identity with Jesus. And I take myself completely out of the equation. Um, and actually it's been so cool to do that because then the question isn't how would we work? It's how are they working and how can mm. I support them in that? And if a relationship does happen to come out of that, I already have figured out how to love them as a friend. Yeah, so I mean, that is weird, but, but that is dating. It's not about how do I find the right person. It's about how do I become the right person. You'll never become who you're meant to be without a love that holds you at your worst. And you'll never become who you're meant to be without a love that calls you to your best. We find that love, exactly that love, in God, who has approached us in Jesus Christ. So as St. Jerome once said, let us learn those things on earth, the knowledge of which continues in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a beautiful, intimate dance, a joyful dance of love in your very nature. It's out of that loving joy that all that is was created, spun out of your affection for one another. Thank you for the gospel story that tells us you have put a, a door on that love and you've opened it wide and you've come out to us and the neighborhoods in which we live and embraced us to pull us back into that intimacy. Thank you. We pray that you'll help us to bow the knee to Jesus Christ to be filled with the spirit that brings love into our lives and that we'd share it with those around us, whoever they are, near and far. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.